Well, this morning, what I thought I'd like to do is um, look at the Christian life in relationship to a pencil. The Christian life in relationship to a pencil. I don't know if many of you realize this, but I do a lot of traveling overseas, and I work in uh, third world countries where people don't have a lot of background. So especially when I'm teaching teachers, I try to leave object lessons. Uh, so I'm going to share one here this morning with you and hope to get some conversation going over it. But, you know, before we had the computer, before we had the iPad, before we had calculators, before we had typewriters, we had the pencil. So people don't realize how important this invention really is and continues to be. Uh, but it has a, a tremendous implication, I, I believe, to our Christian life. And if you turn with me to 2 Corinthians for a moment, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And verse 1 and 2 says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some other epistles or commendations uh, to you, or letters of commendation from you? You are letters written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are a letter of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but in the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of the flesh, that is, of the heart. Now here, Paul is saying the believers he's writing to in Corinth are letters, epistles, if you will, at that time, but they be, are being read of all men. And in a sense, our Christian life, every day we're writing an autobiography of our life. And uh, if you think of every day as a page, it's flipping every, every day as a new page, but we are writing. And as believers, what is it that we're writing? That's what I want to discuss here this morning. Now, if you take a pencil, what is the most important part of the pencil? What is the most important part of the temple, pe pencil? The eraser. Huh? I guess you could say any part, but if you don't have one part, it's not a pencil. You know what you call a pencil without lead? A stick. Okay. The inside is the most important part of the pencil. What is the most, most important part of a Christian? The inside, the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, it says in Hebrews chapter 8, you're none of his. If you stay here in uh, 2 Corinthians, next chapter 4, he says in verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power of God may be seen and not of us. Here he's saying, we have this heavenly treasure in these earthen vessels, which means what? It's a metaphor he's using here for what? Human body. The human body is the earthen vessel, but the heavenly treasure, this power that we, is what? It's the Spirit of God, it's the Holy Spirit. Now again, is everybody born into this world with the Holy Spirit? No. no. Good. Okay. Sometimes I get mixed questions. We are not. That's why it'll say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans will say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're separated from God. That goes way back in Genesis when God tells Adam and Eve, if you partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. die. And die there means separation. And so that is your working, that is the working definition of a Christian. 
So much so that if you turn to the end of this same letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, remembering that Paul is writing this to a church, and there are churches in, in the Corinthian region, but he says this in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Notice he uses these two verbs. Number one, examine yourself. Number two, test yourself. Uh, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you are failed the test? In other words, Christ is not in you. You see how he, this is the ultimate test. This is, this is you know, if somebody says, well, what's a Christian? If you say that to you, are liable to get what kind of answers? What kind of response? If you say to somebody, I'm a good guy. Okay, I'm a good person. What else? I go to church. I go to church. I give money. I give money. Well, you do that to the IRS, but okay, go But what else? I'm better than most. I'm better than most people. I didn't kill anybody. I'm trying to live a good life. I live by the golden rule. Um, Don't steal on my taxes. Yeah, on and on and on. Looking at what we do. And many of these could be Christian things. Go to church, pay, tithe, go to Sunday school. But again, those things don't save us. Okay? We don't do Christian things to be a Christian. We do Christian things because we are Christians by nature. Does that, does that, this is very, I think, a very important point. Because many times people think that becoming a Christian means getting more religious. Or we get more moral, or tune in over a new leaf, or try to be a better person. Those are all good things, but that is not the thing. As we often say, Jesus did not die on the cross and rise from the grave to make nice people nicer. He died on the cross and rose from the grave to make dead people alive. Yes? Yeah. Am I speaking too loud? No, you're doing okay. um, So he says here, and 2,000 years later, this could be preached in every church on every given Sunday. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Are you in the faith? That is to say, is Christ in you? Paul will say in Colossians chapter 1, the greatest mystery throughout all the ages, greatest mystery throughout all the ages is this. What is it? Holy Spirit. Christ in you. The hope of glory. He's saying that is the greatest. That is hands down the greatest. And that separates Christianity from any other religion. Any other religion, philosophy, belief system in the world, that separates it all. Because it's not about what I do, it's what's been done. It's not what I do for myself to try to get to heaven or be right in God's eyes, it's what's been done. Therefore, I am not saved by good works, but I'm certainly saved for good works. Good works are extremely important. Any thought on any of this? I'm just kind of laying down foundation. How about, how about where he says... Well, I'll get to that. Believe me. How about the eraser? Okay. <laughs> how about where Jesus says you must be born again? That yeah, kind I mean, of says it all. That's a good point, John. That when, when Jesus, what's interesting about that, who is Jesus talking to when he says that in John chapter 3? He's talking to a high member of the church. He's talking to Nicodemus. And what's this man's resume? First, he's Jewish. Number two, he's the leader. He's some type of leadership in the Sanhedrin. Three, he's a rabbi. And Jesus says, how you being a ruler of Israel don't know this. And, and you know, he's got all, he's probably very moral, I'm, I'm assuming, at that high position.
But the first thing Jesus says to him is what? You must be born again. You must, I could see him saying that to the tax collector, to the woman caught in adultery. But he's saying it to a very moral, religious person. Does that? I think that's, that's telling in some ways uh, that you must be born again. You must have the Spirit of God. As a matter of fact, if you turn back to John chapter 3 for a moment. The Gospel of John. Um, and, and again, here's your, here's your working definition. Last verse, uh, John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who, who does not believe on the Son of God does not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon that person. Is that, you see high clarity here. It's, it's binary. It's like light, death, light, darkness. There's no in-between on this. You're either spiritually alive or you're spiritually dead. And, yes, please, Jerry. So, I have a question. When you baptize as a baby, I know this is very controversial, but are you born again? That's a dedication. That's a good point. What does it require to be born again? What did, what did Peter say on the day of Pentecost when they said, after this great sermon, what must we do to be saved? You know? A changed life. You've got to repent. You've got to have faith, believing people. We're saved by grace through faith. But it says in John chapter 1, verse 12, to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become a child of God. But baptism is a separate issue, as Mark says, with dedication of a child or something. But for an adult, for I, I can't because some because my parents did something on my behalf. That doesn't that doesn't make me a believer. That's why it'll say in John chapter one, we're saved not by the will of God nor by the flesh. By th that was the thing with Israel. The Jewish people would always say, "We have Abraham as our father. We have this. We have this religious lineage. We, you know, no, that didn't that put them in a good position." to come into a right relationship with God, but heritage and lineage uh, has nothing to do with it. They, they even had the law. They, they had, had the law. You know, you know, I could spend a year in the garage, that doesn't make me a car. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, 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 you, you, you must have that transactional experience. It's almost like marriage, I think we talked about this. You come in and dedicate your life to that person through an oath, through a prayer, through a surrendering your will, and then you walk out of that church or whatever, to the exclusion of all others, you've devoted your whole life to that person. You know, that's a small metaphor, but in a sense, there's, a, there's a, a moment, an episode in your life where you come to the knowledge, I'm a savior, I need of a savior, I'm a sinner, I need of a savior, and you have that, that moment where you, you experience that, that transactional engagement with Jesus Christ to receive the gift of forgiveness. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, I know. I know. I believe that, and I know that, but yes. you know, if you, like, I'm married to an Orthodox person, uh -huh. and I, all her older family, they they don't think of it as a dedication as much as they believe that's when the baby moves from spiritual death mm. to life. Okay. Was there somebody else had a question? Okay. Again, I, the, the key is, again, I can quote from John where he even talks about that kind of thing without too much discussion, but it's this idea that... Uh, we have the power now through Christ. Um, it says, but as many as received him, how do you, how do you receive something? 
if somebody offers you a gift, you have two options on the table. You can say, I don't want it, or you can receive it. But I cannot receive a gift on behalf of you, Jack. See, if somebody, somebody gives you $1,000, I can't go, and he's going to give it to me on, on behalf of you, you see. That's why it'll say here. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become a child of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, that's lineage, that's family, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. I mean, all of us in this room would like to see our children come to Christ, right? Right. I would assume, you know, but we can do things to, to, to make a culture in the home that could facilitate that and make it easier by modeling and messaging and, and praying for them. Uh, but I can't, I can't get in and turn their will. I can't turn their will. Now you must accept God and Jesus as your Savior as a, as a parent. See, does that make sense? Yep. <laughs> Those, these are like big questions. Um, okay. Yeah, the pencil. Um, so the most important thing is what's inside this pencil. And, and the most important thing in your life and in my life is the Holy Spirit. Now, it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to live this life, to, to, to be dedicated to God, to write that message that he wants us to write, our life's legacy, our life's story. But to be really effective, to be really effective, this pencil, even on the natural, this pencil needs periodically to be what? Sharpened. Sharpened. See, the pencil needs to be periodically sharpened. And Jesus will say in John chapter 15, let, we're in John, let's just jump over there for a moment. John chapter 15. He says, um, in the famous vine dresser, he says, John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, notice, every, every branch that bears fruit, he what? He prunes. But it's already bearing fruit. You think it would be, oh, you're in good shape. Your, your life is bearing spiritual fruit. Those are the ones he comes and prunes. Why? He brings forth more fruit. He wants more fruit. He wants more fruit. Out of, the success, out of the one that's being fruitful, he wants more fruitfulness. Now, if the one was bare, he says he prunes, we can understand, yeah, you got to cut it back. In there. No, he's yeah. saying here, the one that bears fruit, I'm pruning, and then he says that it might bear more fruit. And then he says, you are already clean through the word which I have spoken to you. This is one of the keys uh, to spiritual cleansing is to expose ourselves to the word of God. Yeah. One of the first signs of backsliding is what? One of the first signs of a backslidden Christian is what? Stop reading. Stops reading the Word of God and separates himself from the community of God. Doesn't mean the person's necessarily lost, but those are telltale signs often. Because when you come to the Word of God, it has a cleansing effect. Somebody says, as we read the Word of God, the Word of God is reading us. It's kind of like an extract, you see. It's, it's, it's searching the deep things of the heart. It convicts, it illuminates, it instructs. All of these qualities in John chapter 14 and 16 that Jesus talks about. But he wants to prune us, each one of us. One of the ways he's doing that is through the word of God. And then he comes down and he says, uh, verse uh, 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, uh, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you now bear what? Much fruit. See, it starts out with fruit, 
more fruit, much fruit. You see the progression? Uh, this, is, this is the reason you want this pencil sharpened, that it, the point, you're always on point, so to speak. In other words, that our lives are always where God would have them to be, that he can use us in these daily situations. If we let a pencil get down to where it's just a nub, it's still a pencil, but what? How can that be in our lives? Can our Christian life, our Christian walk be dull in that, in that sense? How? Sin. Sin. So what happens when we sin? When we don't abide in Christ, but we, we, we got one foot in the world and one foot abide. What happens to the story we're writing or our effectiveness? It gets and rotted. Unclear. It, it, it's, sometimes you can't even see what it's writing. And our lives can be indistinguishable from somebody that's not a believer that is a believer. We can lose our testimony. We, we can, we can, we can, we can sell, sell our birthright, so to speak, for a pot of porridge. You know, we can look and study Lot. Study Lot. I mean, he was with Abraham. He is the nephew of Abraham, the father of faithful. But when his, the herdsmen are having a disagreement, and then Abraham basically says, you, let's separate. You choose where you want to go. Where does he look? Where does Lot, what direction does he look? To Egypt. You know, he thinks about Egypt, I look at it, and he heads south to Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, if you study the progression there, first he's looking. First it's in his heart. And then he looks there. It says it's, it reminds him of the cities of Egypt and all this kind of stuff. And then it says he has a tent that's outside the city. And then he has a house in the city. And then he's in the gates of the city. It's a progression so what happens when trouble comes and judgment is falling, he goes to try to warn his family and he goes to his sons-in-laws and they look upon him as what? When he says, come on, there's a judgment of God is falling, get out. What do they say? They looked upon him as one who mocked. They laughed at him. He had no testimony. See, this was worn down. This, this point, his, his effectiveness, his, his righteousness had been worn down that even unbelievers thought it was just a big joke. See, that's why Jesus says, if salt loses its savor, it's good for what? Nothing. Nothing. That men would <clears throat> trample upon. Now, think of the last 30 years. Great ministries have fallen. Am I right? And they become a butt of jokes. They're not? Now, look at the death of Billy Graham two years ago. Even the secular news and Dateline and 25, they all said he lived a good life. We couldn't find nothing on this. I mean, he was very cautious about his walk, but he kept that point. And he was a human. I mean, he was flawed. And but nevertheless, he kept that point as sharp as he could, that his legacy would be very clear. Any comment on this? You see? Yes, yes, please. Yeah, um, I think of the word complacency. Mm. I think it was A.W. Tozer that said the complacency of Christians is the scandal of Christianity. And, um, and, and you know, the word of Christ and church have latest is in terms of your neighbor it's hot and yeah. cold and, and uh, for me that's a challenge in terms of am I becoming complacent in my faith um, and, and not not desiring to be sharpened yeah I think it's a good point Jim why because sometimes we put our spiritual lives on cruise control we're doing okay you know we're doing all right you know we're just we're doing the right things but we don't realize there's more you know, we studied the parable of the vineyard last week in Matthew chapter 21. 
God is always looking for something when he plants a vineyard. What is it? You businessmen know what ROI means, right? Return on capital. Return on investment. Do you think God's looking return on investment in your life, in my life, in your life? Yes. Do you think he's heavily invested in each one of us? If we're sitting here this morning with the freedom to assemble like this without fear of persecution and police pulling up, if we're sitting here this morning with this Bible in our own language, right at that level, and free coffee and tea, but I'm just saying, we are, we are highly resourced people. We just are. And I don't know how many of you trapped in third world countries where they don't have this. They might have part of this Bible in their own language. They have to meet secretly. Uh, I remember when we lived on the Thai Myanmar border, I still remember when the police came to our, um, there was an incident up there, but they came and they wanted the list of pastors in that area. I, I think the one they wanted, we kind of played a little game where I didn't give it to them, but the, those kind of things where they're looking, where the Christians are gathering, who's there, we don't feel that here yet. God willing, we never will, but that kind of, you know, therefore we should be, we should be a flourishing people. We, we, God has given us much, and he looks for, yes, sir. It says God prunes. Please. It says God prunes. Right. So, do we to expect that he'll prune? We don't have to do it ourselves, or? How does he prune? That's a good open question. That's a good point. How does God prune? Yes. He closes doors. He closes doors. What does it say in Proverbs? Iron. I mean, do you think us getting together here and having these discussions and, and hearing the word of God can have an effect of pruning us? I mean, we could touch on something. It's like I could teach on something. What I'm teaching could strike me in a very convicting way, like, wow, you should really change your behavior or your thoughts or your motivation regarding this. So pruning, that's one way. Okay, somebody. The word. Said. The word of God is another way. Pruning is a cleansing. You're cutting. It was very interesting. Uh, three months ago, we did an early century tour of Italy where Paul landed. Off. When we were up in the Tuscanies by this vineyard, they were giving us why these grapes grew so big. He says, you cut them back, and they look like little shrubs. They look really nothing going on. And he says that stresses them, and it causes them to go deeper with their root system. Therefore, they'll flourish more. But he says we cut them. They look like really bad. I mean, they didn't look good at all. It's cut and it's just. But God can do that with us by the way of his Holy Spirit. But my belief is he'll use every tool in the toolbox. Okay? He'll use the word of God. He'll use our wives. He'll use a radio program. He'll use a dream. He'll use. Why? Because the goal of him is for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Or as Paul says, I want to see you come to the full stature of who you are in Christ Jesus. So that pruning, but it is taking away or cutting away, and that's why they'll say in Colossians 3, kill, not take away, kill this, what? And he goes through this, well, turn there for a moment, Colossians chapter 3. That's cutting. Um, look at, look at uh, Colossians chapter 3. He's talking to believers here that have been... Um, it's, a, it's a very spiritual church, actually, the church of Colossae. But he, he begins in verse 1, but he says, If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. In verse 5, Therefore put to death your members. And so there's no confusion or ambiguity here. He says, what, what should I put to death? Look at the list. 
fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, disobedience. Verse 8, put off this anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. That's cutting. That's, that's dead wood. You know, to your point about pruning. Does that make sense? So God can do it internally. He can convict us. But he also expects us to do our part. When the first thing out of the box there says put to death, fornication, that, that could be like pornography today. Don't, don't play with it. Put it to death. Put it out of your life. Cut it. Any thought on that? It's like a really important point. Why? For one reason, not that it's just bad and evil, but it's keeping us from the best, which is to, to, to abide in Christ. He just doesn't do this you know, to do it. He's, he's, a, he's a good father. He wants us to, to, to avoid these things and put these things to death that we can draw closer to him and enjoy the benefits of sonship with him. Yes, please. I guess from this teaching of what you don't do, what you let go of, the word indifference is the beginning of our demise. When we're indifferent about his instruction regarding pornography, that's the beginning of getting off the highway. Yeah. And you see that exemplified just in Genesis and Exodus. I mean, Joseph, I mean, David, you know, he's on the roof of his house when men go to war, and he's overlooking at another roof, and he sees Bathsheba, you know, and then he makes a decision, and then he makes another, then he makes another decision. That's why it's true. They say, sin will take you farther than you wanted to go and make you pay more than you wanted to pay. I mean, we see that classically. It's the lives of celebrities, politicals, that, that have downfall by doing things that they thought were private and secret. You know, I think we all, Paul says, I keep my body under subjection, let's have him preach the gospel, I become a castaway. That's the great apostle Paul, says he's got to maintain that, that, that self-control and that examination. Somebody else said something? Yes, Bob. Uh, it was a substance. Uh, Pardon me? Uh, substance. A testing can, yeah. It says that in... Yeah, James chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, talk about the trials, testings, the strengthening of our faith, you know, through these things. If we go through it uh, with the right attitude, seeing that there's a benefit, you know, in terms of spiritual growth and character. Uh, so there's many ways that, that he will take the pencil uh, from this to, to back being sharp. And, and that's a very, very important thing. And that comes to the third component, and that's the eraser. Okay. Uh, the fact that it's just not a, a writing instrument, which is not what we do, but he offers us uh, a way if we do sin. Uh, because if you turn to 1 John chapter 1, um, we, we serve a God whose mercies are new every morning. But he says this here in 1 John. Uh, he says, 1 John, uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. A couple of interesting points here. This is John writing this, right? And they think it's late in his life. Probably not long after this, he gets the book of Revelation, you know, the inspiration for that. This man at this time, I'm presuming, he was closest to Jesus. I mean, he was the one that was closest. He says he's the one that Jesus loved. So he's very, my assumption at this time, he's a very, very holy man. 
Okay, but what does he say in verse 8? If he's not saying if you say you you have no sin in your life, he's saying what? We if we. Even the Apostle John at this time in his life is very conscious of the fact that he still has things when he comes to the light of God and the exposure of his word that he has to deal with and to repent for. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You know the worst deception of all? Self-deception. That's why when you see this in the scripture, we deceive ourselves. How many people deceive themselves? You know, this is a big problem. And again, the corrective to that, the antidote to that, is the Word of God. Because it offers us this corrective process. Then he says, realizing this, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. So in a sense, that's the eraser. But it must be applied. You know, just like if you make a mistake with a pencil, if you don't... If you don't erase it, the mistake is still there on the paper. You know, somebody has said, when an airplane goes down, commercial jet line, what's the first thing they look for? The box. The black box, which prompts the question, well, if they make the whole plane, that's the same stuff they make the black box out of. But, <laughs> but what's contained in the black box? A memory of the, of the recent history of that plane, altitude, height, speed, everything. Study the Gospels when it talks about the rich man in hell and everything else. When we die, one of the faculties that are still intact when we die is what? Our memory. And all God has to do is hit rewind and play. Every deed, every thought, every secret motive is on display. But the beauty of God's tape recorder, it has that race button. It's known as the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay. And now, I know I give some of you guys uh, some scripture verses, but if you start studying God's impulse, God's desire to forgive us, it's incredible. And maybe over here at this table, you guys might read those scriptures I've given you. The first one is from uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17, where it says, uh, In their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Okay, Mark Lutley. Uh, Micah 7, 18, and 19. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of a remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Okay, verse after verse. John, you gave me one too. Yeah, I'm going to give one second. Okay. Uh, what's interesting on that Micah passage, he cast our sins where? Into the depths of the sea. In the book of Revelation, at the very end, what is there no more of? No more seas. Okay, how far can God take your sin, my sin, and get, get them out of there? You see, clear it, over Yes, God. Uh, Hebrews 8, 12. For I will be uh, merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And John? And this is from Isaiah 43, 25. God speaking. I alone am the one who is going to wipe away your rebellious actions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins anymore. Thank you. John, one more. Yeah, okay, Mark. 
uh, in Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, that's his grace, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities, that's his mercy. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Thank you. And there's one more. Isaiah chapter 1. Yes, please. Isaiah chapter 1, 18. Come now, let's settle with them, says the Lord. For your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. For they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Thank you. It's powerful. Uh, I, I love that because it's like a father saying to a, an errant child, come let us reason together. Let's talk this over. But all of these verses show you God is merciful. In John chapter 12, Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world. I came to save the world. It says in Peter, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all may come to repentance. In Matthew chapter 25, it says that hell was not made for man. It was made for who? The devil. The devil and his angels. But if we just go our own way and follow that, well, we'll end up there. Yeah, you know, there's, there's tremendous warnings to go this way because God is rich in mercy and plenteous in grace. Yes, please. Can I mention something? The gentleman that brought up complacency. Sure. I just kept thinking about it. When I was deployed to Iraq in 2005, something that was ingrained in us was, and we had signs that said, complacency kills. Mm. Not that it's dangerous, but it freaking kills. And in different manners that it kills, it could be that a Marine didn't wear proper armor. You know, we had all kind of armor, heavy armor, even armor around our growing area. Uh, our Kevlar helmets were heavy. It could be something, a lot of convoys that we went on, seeing something on the road that, ah, I was there yesterday. It's probably not an IED. Um, the same thing with our walk. Complacency can kill. It can be us, you know, I think Ephesians 6 talks about putting on the armor of God. What does that look like for us? Well, for me, it looks like getting my ass up in the morning, spending time with God, <coughs> listening to God, praying, you know, also like a convoy, you know, being around the right people, mm -hmm. not being around the wrong people, not entertaining a conversation with a female or an email or something, but just putting on that armor of God because you know what, it can kill us too. So, that's a good point. Just kind of yeah. hitting I, I think to the point of complacency, that that's, I, the world, the spiritual world has a spiritual gravity to it. By default, we go down. It just pulls us down. If we don't, and that's where complacency comes in. We will just go down. And discipleship and has discipline in it. If we're not intentional about that, as you say, getting up early in the morning, being in the Word of God, being in community with fellow believers, we are naturally going to go down because this world has fallen. It's one of the enemies to the Christian life is this is what's known as this world, the world system. And to, to overcome that requires some deliberate intention. Any dead fish can float downstream. Okay? It takes salmon a lot of intentionality and goal orientation to move upstream against that current. It's similar. We're going against culture today. I mean, if, you, if you're not aware of this, we're, culture is in a tsunami change, is it not? Right now, right here. It just is. And those that have traveled around the world know this too. You know, it's, we're in a big change. Okay. So here we see the eraser and we looked at these different verses. That's just a handful of verses, but continually there's this, this uh, 
welcome that, so to speak, that God puts out to come. But we can only come his way. There's no other way. There's no other. There's one way. And, and Jesus says, I am the, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. There simply is exclusive. But truth, by definition, is exclusive. I remember having this discussion with a Buddhist monk once in Thailand. He, he basically said all religions are the same. I remember talking with him. He said, Tom P, Guy B, Tom Chui, you know, this religion. I says, is two plus two equal four? He goes, yeah. I says, it's not bad at number seven, no. It's not number one, is it? He says, no. I says, why? He says, well, that's, that's the truth, two plus two. I says, truth, by definition, is exclusive. Jesus is the only way. And that's why all other religions, they'll attest to a prophet or a teacher. Only Christianity has a dying, rising Savior. There's a reason for that. Okay, so that's that component. Now, the, the, one of the most critical things to get the writing right and to get our life's legacy, the story we're writing, is who's holding the pencil. Now, let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Uh, again, he reiterates this. Uh, he says, number one, uh, chapter 8, verse 8, he says, So then, those that are in the flesh cannot please God. What does it mean to be in the flesh? Be alive. Romans chapter 8, verse 8. You live by your own desires. You just live according to the world. I mean, the world does this, you do that. They show that movie, you watch that movie. They have to, they're just going along with the system. You're, you're not focused on the spirit, you're just focused on the flesh. And some of it may not even be bad, but it's just, it's not getting you where you want to go spiritually. I mean, every one of us could have been sleeping in this morning, I mean, right? Get up at 7 to come here. And then he says, um, verse 9, but you are not in the flesh. He's talking to the church in Rome at this time, but in the spirit, if indeed, now again, he says this, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is what? He doesn't belong to him. He's not his. You can't get into the family of God unless you're born into the family of God. Does that make sense? It's, it's repeated, repeated, repeated again and again. Now, uh, he will say then, verse 11, um, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, you see that, what he's saying? Here? The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, if it dwells in you and me, uh, we should be able to live a, a victorious life. Or we should, we're empowered now. If that, the same thing that brought Jesus out of the grave now indwells us. He says, therefore, um, therefore, brethren, uh, he, he says in verse 12, uh, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you die. But if the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, verse 14 is the operative verse. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. See, it's like this. It, to be led by the Spirit is to allow God, His Holy Spirit, to control our lives. To control what part of our lives? Oh, every part. Well, what's, what's the parts? The spirit, mind. You could go physically, the tongue, the eyes, the ears, but you can go inwardly, the heart, my motives, my desires, my, my, my thought life. He, he, he want, this is the thing about Jesus. He, he wants it all. I mean, he's a God. You know, they have a saying in Asia that a sinner often doesn't look for God for the same reason a thief doesn't look for a policeman. Because once he encounters him, he's got to change, okay? When we come and receive Jesus as our Savior, yeah, 
many want Jesus as their Savior. What do we want him as Lord? To want him as Lord means he's going to, he wants to take over the pencil. He's not going to take it out of our hands because we're working with him. But he wants us to be spirit-led. What does it mean, this verse here? I'll start wrapping up. What does it mean to be spirit-led? What does it mean not to be spirit-led? To live by the will of God. It says in Ephesians, grieve not the Holy Spirit. Okay? We, as Christians, we don't have 620 laws like they had in the Old Testament. Everything from dietary to ceremonial to clothing. But we do have a couple, and one of them is, is what is it that grieves God, and what is it that pleases God? And I believe, because we have the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to know, if I do that, or if I ponder on those thoughts and let my imagination run wild, or if I do that or say that, that I'm grieving the Holy Spirit. But if I do that, I can please God. Any thoughts on this? What we're going towards is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, to live lives where our pencil, the marks we're making, wherever we're at, we're leaving a mark. The pencil's leaving a mark wherever it goes. So our lives are leaving a mark. We're writing something on the daily pages of our life. But what is it? He wants to, when I was little, I think it was first grade, is that, do they still teach penmanship or cursive? I don't know why I cursive. I don't know. It's but coming I remember back. we get these, these, maybe you guys remember, maybe I'm dating myself, but we used to get this lined paper and we would make the F's like this and the L's like that. And sometimes you get it outside the line. But I remember this teacher, she was very kind. And she'd come up behind you and she'd put her hand over your hand and start making the letters like that. You were still doing it, but she was guiding you. And I think that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. He's not going to take a pencil out of our hands, but he wants to work with us. Why? Because he wants our lives to glorify God. The limited time we have on this planet, we're writing something. What is it we're writing? Any thoughts? I'm going to go to one more scripture and close up. Yes. I don't mean to take it off. That's all right. Any thoughts on it? It's a good question. How does grace control our hands? Well, we don't. We, we're not wallowing in our sorrow after we sin. And, and if we go the other way from the sin, uh, then we start to renew ourselves. But, but God's grace is, is where that's at. It, it, Satan wants to keep us down. Um, but, but God's grace keeps us to where we can walk away from that and keep and stay in his moving forward and growing and, and, and you know, getting stronger. Okay. Grace is the eraser. We don't know the depth of his grace. That's the thing. And a lot of people uh, cut, cut it short. And, 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 and uh, I think that's what we maybe uh, would want to say something against somebody or, well, he's going to go to hell. I know that. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't know that. Mm -hmm. You know, his grace is beautiful. And his grace is which Yes, Bill. John. With God, every day is a new day because of his grace. We can, have, we can have sinned yesterday, but we get up today and we ask for forgiveness, and that's his grace that he gives us. And that's throughout our lives. So we never have to forget that. We don't, we don't, we don't have a God that doesn't forgive us. Mm -hmm. And through his grace and his death on the cross, we are forgiven. If we accept it. Yeah, good point. Somebody else did. 
Exactly right. We're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. We live by grace. What is the definition? What's the working definition of grace? Free gift. Free gift. So if I had a whiteboard here and I listed, what free gifts did we get through Jesus Christ when we accepted Him? What's what? Just name. What's what's the first thing we get? Life. Life. Eternal life. Not just this life. About Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness of sin. Removal of guilt. What else? Peace. Peace. Joy. How about brothers and sisters in Christ here and around the world? I'm, I'm serious. How about access to the Word of God? How many read Scripture before they were a believer? I couldn't figure it out. I mean, I'm just saying, what's it about? You know, you could go down a whole list to see what we get by grace, meaning we have not earned it, to your point. We're saved by grace, we live by grace, we're gifted by grace, on and on and on. You know, the greatest exchange of all was he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might what? Become the righteousness. Become the righteousness. There's your greatest exchange. They call it the great exchange. We give on Jesus our sin, our guilt, our wickedness, our wasted years, our bad example. In return, he gives us forgiveness, peace, salvation, eternal life. He's building us a house and home. You know, well, you know that's grace. I'm going to wrap it up. One, one, one thing about a, the pencil analogy. Um, as a kid, I had a bad sharpener. And I just ruined several pencils by mm. putting them into this mechanical device and grinding a nice one down to two inches. So I think we have to be careful what kind of tools we use to sharpen. Okay, that's, that's cool. All right. I don't want to stretch these metaphors too far. <laughs> All right. I'm going to close on this. Let's, let's turn to Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19. I, I find this chapter very interesting because Job is... is, is it's like 21st century. He's really going through it here. Uh, Job chapter 19, verse 13, he says, uh, He has removed my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. They count me as a stranger. He says, uh, verse 17, what does he say there? My breath is breath. My, my breath is offensive to my wife. I am repulsive to the children. Even young children despise me. He goes through all of these things, but then he says something that I think is the anchor of his life and his faith. And he says this in verse 23. Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock. You think this is going to be important, what he's going to say here? This thing that gives stability and meaning to his life, even in a time of uncertainty and, and, and being cast away. He says, what is it he wants us to remember or know, even if it was written on a rock by a pen? For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at the last day on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, not hope for, or I imagine it might happen. He says, I know this, that in the flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold not another, how my heart yearns within me. What is in those, in those two verses, what is he saying? 
What's, what gives him anchor to his life in a time of uncertainty? What is it he really wants to write down and remember, not just for himself, but for us sitting here today, August 9th, 2019? What is it? Number one, he says, I know what? My Redeemer. He doesn't say Lord or God. What is a Redeemer? Amen. Somebody that purchased you. Somebody that purchased you back. Something that was lost or, and you have to go. I don't know how many ever use the services or pawn shop, but the idea of uh, you took a guitar radio there and they give you lower amount for it, and then you get a ticket, and you can go back at a higher price and purchase that which you once owned back. Well, that's what it says in Peter. We've been redeemed, right. not with silver and gold, but by what? Right. By the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So he talks about a redeemer. And then he says he's going to come back. He knows Jesus came once, but this is coming back the second. Then he says, he's, I, my eyes will see it. Though I died and decayed, I'm going to have a resurrection body. You understand what he's saying? I'll see it for myself. He's personalized this. And then he says, my heart yearns within me. I, I set my compass. This is true north. I'm holding fast. That's, that's where I anchor my life. How many, you know, how many have had this experience with a GPS system in their car? And it's audible. You know, it's a real calm voice. Next, take, you know, 500 feet, turn right, turn left, and you don't do it. What does the voice then say? In 700 yards, dude, real calm, real calm, right? But it's always recalibrating so that we are going to get to that goal that we punched into that GPS system. So too, Job here says, this is my goal. I want to please my Redeemer. I want him to write in pen when he comes back that I'll see it with my eyes. Not another. And that though I be dead, I'm going to see him in the flesh. Resurrection. Any closing comments before we close in prayer, please? So don't forget the pencil. Okay, Robert, would you close us in prayer, please? Wow, Lord, what a great morning. Thank you for our brother John Murtha, an incredibly sharp pencil in the hand of God. We pray for Fred Corey, our brother, healed his throat thoroughly, completely, and powerfully back to us. And God, I'm reminded that thousands of years ago, 120 men were in a room, and then the power of the Holy Spirit came, and they are they turned the world upside down. God, I ask for each man in this room that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit and endued with power from on high. I ask that the Word of God would dwell in us richly. I ask that we would continually put on the armor of God. And I pray, God, that we'd go out of this room, this locker room, Go out into the field today knowing that we have victory because of you. You're an awesome God, and we're humbled by you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. amen.